Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Right now, France promising to step up efforts to help the Sahel decapitate, to quote, the Al-Qaeda and affiliated groups there. How to stop the Sahel from becoming France's Afghanistan. Leaders of a group of five West African Sahel nations are meeting in Chad to discuss the security situation in the region. Hold Your Fire, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. and welcome to Hold Your Fire. I'm Naz Modirzadeh. And I'm Richard Atwood. Today we're going to talk about the war in the Sahel, a semi-arid region that stretches across North Africa. We'll talk especially about violence in three countries, Mali, Niger and Burkina Faso. The region's been in a protracted crisis since 2012, when jihadists seized northern Mali and held it for the better part of a year. Armed insurgents have ravaged the area for years, capturing territory and launching indiscriminate attacks on civilians, sparking a major humanitarian crisis. They were eventually ousted by French and Chadian forces. Then the UN set up a peacekeeping mission aimed at stabilising northern Mali. The French kept a counter-terrorism force, Operation Barkhane, in the region. There's another force called the G5 Sahel, which comprises troops from countries in the region. It's also fighting jihadists. And yet another military operation, Takuba, a task force comprising European special forces, was launched last year. Crisis Group has referred to the military build-up as a traffic jam of different security forces. Yet the more troops deploy, the worse the violence seems to get. Fighting has spread from northern Mali to the centre and to parts of Niger and Burkina Faso. Last year, it killed more than 6,000 people, making the war in the Sahel one of the world's deadliest. More than 2 million people have fled their homes and the humanitarian crisis is growing. France has a unique role in this fight. It has thousands of troops on the ground battling Islamic militants. But it is no secret that France is searching for an exit strategy. France is in a difficult position. Its strategy in the Sahel is costly. It's not working. And the war is increasingly unpopular at home. But French leaders are reluctant to pull troops out for fear of things getting even worse. Last week, during a summit in Chadian capital, Jemena, 
French President Emmanuel Macron discussed the campaign with his counterparts from the region. Crisis Group published a report. It's called A Course Correction for the Sahel Stabilization Strategy, just ahead of the meeting. We looked at what a different approach would entail. To take us through this complex conflict, we're joined today by Jean-Hervé Jezekel. Jean-Hervé is Crisis Group's director for the Sahel. He's based in Senegal, but has just come back from Bamako, Mali's capital. Jean-Hervé has spent many years living and working in the region for Crisis Group and for other organizations like Médecins Sans Frontières. He's taught at universities in France and the U.S. He has authored many reports for Crisis Group and is really one of the world's most respected experts on the Sahel. In this episode, we're going to talk about what this all looks like on the ground, the limits of the French-led strategy, and what could be a better way forward. Jean-Hervé, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. So, Jean-Hervé, I wanted to ask you first, why was the meeting in Jamena last week so important? Well, to, uh, to understand why this meeting was important, we need to, um, to understand the, the broader context in which uh, it took place. So uh, it's been now eight years that France uh, has deployed troops in the region with the aim to, to roll back jihadi groups and to, um, to stabilize the region. But uh, results are, are way behind expectations. Stabilization strategies are, are simply not working. There are more people dying from armed violence than ever. Nowhere Syrian states have been able to claim back territories from uh, jihadi groups. And quite the other way, more territories are, are at risk of... Uh, of seeing violence developing. Uh, France is not alone in the Sahel. Um, the, the international community has also invested quite a lot in the region. The United Nations, a UN stabilization force, the MINUSMA, that costs about a billion a year. The European Union also. And, and meanwhile, also West African neighbors to the Sahel are also getting nervous because they are seeing insurgencies uh, developing at their border. So in light of these uh, different voices coming into the meeting, what was decided at Jamena? The, the, the Jamena summit came as, a, as an opportunity to um, evaluate the results of this, uh, of this uh, military search. And there were, there were two strong positions around the, the, or before the summit. On the first hand, you have the French authorities coming with a, a positive discourse about, you know, the military results, um, you know, stressing the fact that they have managed to kill prominent jihadists. And the other hand, you have observers, including the International Press Group, pointing that despite some tactical successes, uh, the situation has not uh, drastically improved. You know, after stressing the success of the military surge, President Macron called for a civilian surge. You know, a surge in development, a surge in, in governance, you know, to consolidate the military gains. We believe that's a welcome move on the French side. Uh, but the idea to invest more in development, more in governance, is not really new. And, and it still lacks some clarity on how this would precisely materialize. And what did the summit mean for France's forces in the region? The military option still prevails. You know, for instance, Macron announced the deployment of a Chadian battalion at the three-border area, three-border being between Mali, uh, Burkina Faso and Niger. Macron also announced the, the, the reinforcement of, of Takuba, which is a task force comprised of European special forces. And more importantly, he postponed any decision regarding the downsizing of French forces, at least until next summer. Jean-Hervé, could we back up a little bit? Could you just expand a bit more on what are the French actually doing in the Sahel? Why, why is France involved in the region in the first place? And what, what are the stakes for France itself? Well, 
there is a long history of French presence, you know, evidently in the region, you know, France being, you know, the former colonial power in, in, in the region. And, you know, eight years ago, when there was a jihad insurgency in northern Mali, they decided to step in militarily to stop the, the disaster in, in Mali and, and, and possibly also the, the creation of, a, at that time, of a, of, a, of a jihadist state, you know, of, a, of what they call, you know, an Islamic caliphate in the region. So they have deployed this operation. At first, you know, it was Operation Serval, mostly focusing on, on Northern Mali. And then the following years, in 2014, they expanded the military operation to the broader region. And, and with, the, with the objective to contain the expansion of jihadi groups in the whole region. To be honest and to be fair with the French, they've, they've managed to achieve some tactical uh, 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 military successes, but they are unable to consolidate these gains. We believe that you know that there is something going wrong in the in the in the current strategy with this preeminence given to the military side. You know that it's that it's failing actually to uh, implement you know uh, 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 an efficient connection with investment in development and and, and governance. Jean Ave, could you also just remind us that there is this peace agreement, right? The Algiers Agreement, which was signed shortly after jihadists were ousted from northern Mali. H- how is that relevant to what's happening today? Again, to be, friend, to be fair with the French, you know, they, they also, you know, invest in political processes. And, and one of the political processes in which they invest the most is uh, the uh, Algiers Peace Accord. You know, uh, this, this peace agreement, you know, comes with two significant shortcomings. First, you know, the implementation is extremely slow. Uh, and even when some provisions are implemented, they are proving almost ineffective. For instance... They, you know, following the implementation of the Algeria Accord, armed groups, signatory armed groups, and Mayan forces have organized joint units, but these joint units hardly patrol any, anything outside the military barracks. So they are contained in the military barracks and they don't patrol, you know. So the implementation is slow and, and it is ineffective. Second, disagreement signed five years ago only deals with Northern Mali. And now, you know, the, the geography of the insurgency is completely different than it was five years ago. It has expanded to central Mali. It has expanded to northern Burkina Faso, to eastern Burkina Faso, to the border between Niger and Mali. It has become a regional insurgency. And, you know, the, the, the agreement signed in, in, in five years ago, you know, in Bamako does not include this area. Well, there is a discrepancy, a gap between, you know, what the implementation of this agreement can achieve and, you know, what should be done, you know, in a region that is now broadly at risk of completely collapsing. And there is clearly a, a need for a, a broader political process. But right now, there is not much appetite from, from France, but also from other Western partners to risk reopening this kind of Pandora box of negotiating with, with armed groups. Jean-Evre, can I ask you to tell us a bit more about uh, this transformed insurgency or the geographic transformation, as you point out? What is the current lay of the land in terms of the various jihadist groups that are active in the Sahel? Well, you know, jihadist groups are, are present in different regions of the Sahel. You know, the strongholds are you know, northern Mali, central Mali, northern and eastern Burkina Faso. And I would say also the, the border between Mali and Niger. And beyond that, they are also kind of exploring territories, you know, you know, trying to connect, exploring, you know, other parts, you know, there have been incidents, for instance, recently uh, in Northern Ivory Coast. 
So they, they, they are their strongholds and they are, they are trying to, to, not necessarily to expand everywhere, but to explore possibilities for further expansion. What's also very interesting is that, although, you know, if you look at the map, they're controlling, you know, a, 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 a really a huge territory. They actually control only the rural part of the, of, of, of the countries. They don't control any city. They don't really control any town. They are, they are really rural insurgents. And, and state authorities continue to manage urban centers while, you know, you know, jihad insurgents, you know, control the, the rural countryside. You know, uh, you know, from the testimonies we collected, uh, we believe that, you know, the, the rural population uh, living, you know, under jihadi uh, control, you know, have developed kind of mixed feeling toward with, these groups. You know, it's, it's far from this very simplistic picture of, of you know, barbarism under jihadis. On the one hand, they really tend to see the jihadists as service providers. You know, the jihadists provide forms of security, forms of justice that are often seen as more efficient, closer to the people than what the state provides. Justice, for instance, is, is very interesting. You know, the, the jihadist group will send Islamic judges who are going to move from a village to the other speaking Arabic and local languages and explaining the decision that they're taking. Conversely, state justice is distant. Judges live in the city. They speak, you know, another language, French or, or, or you know, or Bambara, you know, in Mali, that most rural dwellers, you know, do not really understand well. But on the other hand, you know, we, we have to be clear that, you know, the jihadi, the jihadist rule come also with a lot of constraints for the, for the rural communities. You know, uh, you know, while trying to consolidate the Greece part of the country, the jihadists have developed forms of taxation, especially in the form of what they call the zakat, you know, which is kind of a form of, you know, religious taxation. But most people, you know, find, you know, this, this zakat, you know, this taxation excessive, even compared to, to state taxation, for instance. Uh, and for instance, you know, in central Mali, uh, peasants revolted, you know, against local jihadists after a commander, uh, a jihadi commander, tried to tax them just after the harvest. And uh, one, of, one of the leaders of... Um, of the jihadi movement, Ahmed Kufa, who is the leader of the Katiba Masina, one of the strongest group, jihadi groups in, in Central Mali. He, he had to remove this local commander and to appoint a new one because of, of the revolt of the population. So the more they stay in a region, the more the jihadi are, are, are confronted with local issues that they do, not, they do not necessarily manage better than state authorities. A good example also is the use of ethnicity. You know, we often believe, we assume that jihadists are, you know, like experts in man manipulating ethnic tension to their own benefit. And to a certain extent, well, they are. For instance, at, at the border between Mali and Niger, we, we, we've published a couple of reports on this area. So at the border between Mali and Niger, they, they tend to recruit predominantly from what, what we call, you know, the, the Pearl communities. You know, they are, the Pearl are often nomadic herders, uh, and, and the jihadists are trying to introduce themselves as a force that can protect the poor, that can protect the herders. And, it's, and it works. You know, they, in recent years, you know, they, they have tended to recruit predominantly among, you know, these, these communities. But doing so also comes with a price. 
other communities tend to perceive the jihadists as a force that defend the interests of the Pearl, you know. And in turns, you know, the jihadists who are successful with nomadic communities struggle more to develop recruitment, you know, with sedentary communities. And, and for instance, in central Mali, you know, competition for land between different Pearl subgroups what was one of the reasons why, you know, uh, different jetty uh, groups started to fight against each other. Namely, you know, the Al-Qaeda-related groups on the one end and, and Islamic uh, state affiliates on the, on, the, on the other end. So what I want to, to tell you here is that, you know, rural governance come with, comes with challenges for jetty groups. jean could you give us a little bit more on the, the lay of the land with some of these militant groups? So you talked about the Katiba Masina in central Mali. That that group is part of a bigger alliance, right? A, a, an alliance headed by Iaga Gali, this sort of interesting figure who was once a Tuareg rebel and then briefly a Malian diplomat, and now he's leader of the main al-Qaeda franchise in the Sahel. And then there's an Islamic State branch, which you've written about quite a bit in the tri-border areas of Burkina Faso, Mali and Niger. What is the relationship among these different groups? Is it is it more competition? Are they fighting each other? Or are there some signs of cooperation as well? Basically, you have two kinds of coalitions. You have two broad jetty coalitions in the region. The first one, you know, the Jnim, you know, under the, the command of Iyad Aghali, you know, is related to, uh, to uh, Al-Qaeda um, and is controlling mostly northern Mali central, and central Mali. And there are also positions, you know, in Burkina Faso and, and, and some positions, you know, maybe weaker in Niger. Then on the other hand, you have the you know the Islamic State's affiliates uh, that have developed in the recent uh, years and that were probably stronger at the border between Mali and Niger and to a certain extent Eastern and, and Northern Burkina Faso. For years, there was kind of a of an anomaly in the Sahel in the sense that the Al Qaeda affiliated group and the Islamic State affiliated groups collaborated. One with, one with the other, and that they had a common enemy, you know, the French and the local forces, and that they were, you know, even taking part in joint operation against these enemies. Then about two years ago, you know, that we, 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 we've seen the development of increasing tensions between the, the two groups, and eventually, end of 2019, they started to fight against each other. So, and 2020 was really a, a, a year of, of, of infighting, between between uh, jihadi fighting and between jihadi groups, and um, many observers believe that actually, you know, that when the French argue that they have reached successes last year in containing the jihadi groups, many point that actually it's more the infighting between jihadi groups that explain why, you know, there, there was this idea of a kind of a containment or, or slowdown in the expansion of jihadi groups last year. We don't know, you know, if it's going to be a, 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 a game changer for long. You know, it's in a way it has it has forced these groups to to put the expansion on hold, to consolidate their gain in the region because they're fighting against each other. You know, and and, and in the first part of, of 2020, you know, uh, the Al Qaeda related groups seem to win over the other the other side. Then by the end of 2020, it, it looked like you know the Islamic State was not really regaining ground, but, but regaining some capacity to resist. So, you know, it's, it's, it's unclear where it's going, you know, to be sure it has, it has changed the situation and, and it, it, it has, you know, I, I would say that it has given, you know, science states some time to, 
you know, after a, a series of huge defeats, you know, uh, end of 2019. But uh, we don't know yet if it's going to be a, a, a game changer. And what is troubling is that despite the fact that you have all this infighting between jihadi groups, nowhere Syrian states have been able to reclaim control over, you know, territories. That's, that's what is the most worrying, you know. Maybe we have a slowdown in the expansion of jihadi groups, but on the other hand, you know, no one, you know, you know, no one, you know, has, has, has found a way to reclaim territory back, you know, to reincorporate these territories into, you know, the Republic. And Jean-Ever, is there a relationship between that, that failure thus far and some of the inter-ethnic violence that you've written about? Well, that's, that's, that's kind of a complicated issue, you know, the connection between jihadi groups and, and also you know, the violence uh, in, in the region. It's true that, you know, in recent years, you know, in recent decades, let's say, you know, uh, we, we can see like kind of an, an increase in competition, competition for land, competition for natural resources that tend to play, you know, uh, along uh, ethnic lines and that, that tend to, uh, to fuel tensions, you know, over cooperation in a way. A point that I'd like to make here is that it's, it's, you know, it's not only a question of poverty or lack of resources. You know, I, I really like to insist on this point. You know, this is not just like to, to say that people are competing or communities are competing, you know, because there is not enough, enough resources. So your solution is just to create more resources. You know, if you create more resources, you also create potential for more competition. And then what you need is to actually reflect on ways to to peacefully, peacefully manage, you know, uh, access to resources between different communities. But the development of armed groups, the increasing circulation of weapons of war, has offered communities way, ways to settle their differences through violence. And this fuels a, a roaring spiral of violence. And this is where, in a way, in, inter-community tensions connect to the presence of jihadi groups. This is where, you know, Inter-community inter uh, tensions connect also to the rise of, you know, uh, a self-defense group, vigilantes based on, on ethnic uh, uh, affiliations. And, and what is extremely worrying in the region is that in the last few years, and this is new, you know, some states have deliberately encouraged some communities to organize self-defense groups based on ethnicity because they wanted these groups to oppose the progress of jihadi groups. And, and this proved the short-term calculation that actually this, on the one hand, it stopped or it slowed down, you know, jihadist uh, expansion. But on the other hand, it generated, you know, complete chaos in central Mali, in northern Burkina Faso and, and in other areas. So, John Hervé, could you give us a, a sense of what, all this violence and, and this instability, what, what does it mean for people in the Sahel? If you're in sort of rural central Mali, for example, in an area that's affected by the fighting, by the violence, what does the war look like to you? What is the inter-ethnic violence? What is the jihadist presence? H how does all that impact your life? Well, you know, I mean, it depends where you live, you know. Um, I was recently in Bamako, you know, from Bamako you don't see the war. If you go to the rural countryside, then, you know, it depends, you know, if you live in the, in the, in the area that are under the control of the jihadi, I mean, to be honest, there is not much violence. You know, if you comply with their rules, you know, there is not much violence. 
the violence that you can see is, you know, when you have, you know, a, a foreign operation, you, you, I mean, you're in danger, you know, as, as a civilian because actually you live next to a target. And recently there was, there was an, an incident, a, possi- a, a likely incident in central Mali after, after the, the French army, you know, targeted what was described by some local uh, witnesses as, as, as a, as a local wedding that you know, the French forces may have mistaken for a, a gathering of, of jihadists. If you live in, a, in an area that is contested, that, that is disputed between several groups, namely you know, the jihadists on the one hand and self-defense group on the other, then your life is likely to become a nightmare. You, know, you, have, you have villages that are completely besieged, you cannot go outside you know, the, the, the village, you cannot farm, you cannot go to the market, you know, and you have little option but to submit. You know, states sometimes, state forces will try to organize, you know, like, like, like convoy, you know, heavily protected convoys to reach these villages, but they cannot stay for long. You know, and eventually, you know, you have, you have a siege, a well-organized siege around villages or, or small towns, and, and they have to submit. Travelers also are targeted based on their decaffiliation, you know, and, and, and that's, that's a key difference here that we have, you know, in, in the conflict compared to what it was eight years ago. You know, I remember, you know, when we started to work on the region in, in 2013, they were fighting, but the target of the fighting were armed men, fighters, combatants, you know, and civilians were not really affected by the violence. In 2021, you know, that's a, a different picture, you know, a different story. You know, the civilians are today the, the first targets of violence, you know, and either they, they run away and then you have an increasing number of, of uh, internally displaced persons, of refugees, you know, about over a million in a country like, like Burkina Faso, which is about, you know, 20 million people, you know. So you run away or you join an, an armed groups or you leave under the protection of an armed groups. That's, 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 that's the reality of the life, you know, in these contested area. So in light of this increasing violence and the increasing threat to civilians, what should policy look like moving forward? Well, that, that's a $1 million question. <laughs> yes. Now, you know, it's, um, it's, it's been eight years that, you know, crisis group is working in the region, you know. Um, to be honest, you know, like, like three or four years ago, you know, it started to be extremely depressing working for crisis group in the region. You're writing reports, you know, you're describing, you know, the, you know, a situation that is deteriorating and, well, you know, you don't have, you know, much reason for optimism. We had this idea that, you know, for us, you know, it was clear that the, the, the stabilization strategy were failing and we developed an ambition, you know, the ambition to, um, influence, you know, a, a, significant, a significant shift in the strategy, in the stabilization strategy, you know, and I think we did two major things. Yeah, I'm getting excited about studying these things, but, you know, I'm not sure that it's extremely exciting, but, you know, it, it's a way we get out of our pessimism, you know, a few years ago. You know, the first thing, you know, we started to analyze the stabilization strategy, trying to identify why they were failing, what was missing, you know, and we came to understand that you know, again, you know, this strategy, they are multidimensional, but actually they relied on the military first approach, you know, and, uh, and we, 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 we developed an analysis showing that, you know, it's going to be extremely difficult to bring 
to bring back any kind of state if you do not recreate locally and first, you know, an appetite for the state. You know, if you don't reconcile, you know, the state with its own population. So, you know, in recent report, we started to develop, you know, a recommendation at silent states, at partners to change the stabilization strategies. We did not recommend them to, to write a, a full new strategy from scratch, you know, but we, we, we recommended them to, you know, reorder the priorities, you know, trying to insist that, you know, it was not so much a crisis in security as it was a crisis in governance. You know, we advised them to invest first in political efforts to regenerate the, 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 the legitimacy of the state in rural areas, to, you know, recreate, you know, the links between rural citizens and central authorities. The second effort that we have been doing is to develop, you know, I mean, it was clear for, to us that, you know, the military approach was not able to contain the threat and that there was a need to explore political engagement with these groups. And to be honest, three years ago when we started the ID, I was a pretty cold welcome from, you know, most of our interlocutors, you know, and, and some of our interlocutors, you know, even demonstrated some hostility toward, you know, our, our, our idea of working on, you know, the, 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 the political dialogues, you know. But we were convinced after discussion, you know, on the field with, with silence from every level, you know, from civil society organization, traditional leaders, politicians, even military leaders in the Sahel, you know, that, you know, they believe that there was a need to explore this option, you know. And, and what we did is try to produce a report, you know, our, our first report was titled Speaking the Bad Guys, to explore the potential first at the, at, at, the, at the local level for, you know, a political engagement between the state and, uh, and the, the jihadist groups. In a way, the idea was for Christ Group to, to, uh, to put, you know, the dialogue option on the table, you know, to, to, to make it a viable option, you know. And I think we played a role, you know. We were not the only one. <laughs> Let's be honest about that, you know. But, but we played a role, you know, uh, um, in facilitating a... Um, kind of a public discussion on the opportunity to, to engage dialogues with jihadist militants. And last year, you know, the president of Mali, then the prime minister of Mali, more recently the prime minister of Burkina Faso, they have publicly said that they would like to explore this option. All this remains very uh, limited, you know, still very fragile, you know, but I'm convinced this is only the beginning. Still a lot of resistance from all sides, you know, we, we, we don't claim either that dialogue is the silver bullet that is going to solve the crisis in the Sahel, but it's an additional tool that so far has been, you know, really underexplored, you know, and, uh, you know, I won't say that I'm optimistic, but, you know, I will say that, I will say that I'm less pessimistic than I was, you know, a few years ago. jean what what would happen if the French pulled out Operation Barkhane, if they left the fighting to regional forces? We don't know. <laughs> Honestly, you know, we don't know. You know, uh, it's very hard to know right now if Syrian forces are in a position to really resist, you know, a, a broad offensive of, um, uh, of, uh, of jihadi force. You know, I, I, I assume that, you know, in the short term, this may create, you know, some you know, more chaos, you know, in the sense that you will have a lot of, you know, you may have, you know, um, 
kind of a, uh, an attempt by, by, by states to you know, give even more resources to uh, local vigilante groups to replace you know, Barkhane by you know, uh, non-state armed groups. Um, you know, I also believe that it's kind of, um, you know, the departure of the French is kind of a, I'm not sure this is the right question to ask. You know, in a way, you have a lot of other states who are, you know, looking at what's going on in the region and who may actually also replace, you know, the French in a way or, or, or another. Um, and I'm not sure that the French are looking for a full exit of the Sahelian region. Let's look at the history, at the longer term history of the region. It's not seven years that the French are present in the region, it's decades. It's a century that they're present. And, uh, and what we may witness in the coming years is a downsizing of the French operation, but not, you know, uh, uh, an evacuation, you know, unless we have an explosion of the, uh, of the situation. When you're in Bamako, you don't feel that you're in a country at war. So, you know, and if I don't have any, you know, feeling that, that, that I'm in a country at war, you know, I assume that maybe, you know, also in the elite, many of them, you know, they feel well protected. And in a way, you know, to be a little bit provocative, I could say that you can do business as usual, you know, in Bamako. The ruling elite can accumulate resources because, you know, you have other forces, mostly foreign forces, you know, you know protecting this system. And, and I think that we, what, what we should find is, you know, um, a different balance, you know, between uh, stabilizing, you know, the, 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 the region, but also, you know, you know, providing incentive for the states to change, to transform themselves. And, and right now, you know, uh, a strong military presence, a strong French military presence is not an incentive to change for Syrian states. So, jean can I ask you to reflect a little bit on the nature of international military operations? You've now seen two of these operations up close. There was Saval, the French Operation Saval, which ousted jihadists from northern towns in, in Mali in early 2013. Then there was Barkhane, which you've talked about, that has basically taken place since and has, has, is really floundering, as you talk very eloquently about. Having seen these operations up close, particularly the Saval and Barkhane, what do you think we can conclude about what it's reasonable to expect foreign forces to be able to achieve? What should expectations of a foreign military be in the Sahel? The best we can achieve through this military operation is, you know, is to contain, is to contain you know, two things. You know, first, you know, the expansion of, of armed violence and, and jihadi and the presence of jihadi groups is only part of this armed violence, you know, because you know, the more you see international uh, armed forces, the more you also see, you know, the development of non-state armed groups, you know, in a region as, 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 as big as, as, as Sahel, you know, they directly or indirectly, they need proxies. So, you know, what they can do is actually to kind of contain the expansion of violence, you know, and, but also coming with the creation of, 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 of a lot of non-state armed groups. The second thing that they, 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 they may achieve is that they, they kind of, yeah, they stabilize state in the sense that they protect state and, and the ruling elite. But I'm not sure that, it's, uh, that, it, that we can call that a success. You know, in a way, I think that you know, there, is a, there is a tension in the Sahel, you know, uh, between change, the need for change, and the need for stability. And I think that, you know, foreign partners deploying military operations are coming with an appetite for stability. While you have societies 
that I need and that have an appetite for change. Jean-Avey, thank you so much. That was a, a great note to end on, a really fascinating and, and, and rich discussion. Richard, I thought that was a fantastic conversation, and I would definitely recommend that our listeners also turn to the course correction report, because I think there they find more of this analysis, but also putting it in the context of COVID-19 and of the sort of historic negotiations that have gone on in this conflict. Um, I thought one of the things that Jean Hervé said towards the end, it was such a great point, uh, that the idea of a stabilization force is in some kind of inherent tension with the very insurgency that got us there, that that people want change, people want something different. And at times that may be at odds with the goals of foreign forces who are on the ground. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I thought the, the way he described that, uh, that balance was really, uh, really, really enlightening. I mean, in general, there was so much to learn from what he said about military interventions, as you know, we talked about at the end, it sort of shows some of the things that foreign military operations can do, like oust militants from towns, overthrow a leader, some of the things we've talked about on previous episodes, but also some of the things that they can't do, which is build something sustainable afterwards. And also some of the huge pitfalls are the risks of getting bogged down with no way out, creating an elite that does quite well out of the war. And I think the conversation sort of really highlighted the perils of intervention and really just how high the bar has to be uh, for us to, to, to sort of recommend the military going in. I thought the second bit that was really interesting, and again, you know, we, we, we talk about this in other places, is this question of talking to jihadists. Uh, you know, Islamic State, Al-Qaeda-linked militants fighting on many of today's battlefields, especially in Africa. It's often difficult to defeat them militarily, so what do you do? And Jean Ave and his team have really pioneered efforts to get that option of talks on the table in the Sahel, which you know he, he talked about. Obviously, there's some big challenges. Some of the challenges relate to the groups themselves. They're, you know, they're often not interested in dialogue. They're often unpopular. The Islamist rule they want is rejected locally. The transnational goals aren't usually achievable by negotiations. And then there's the challenge related to the international taboo. And, and the French, in this case, have been traditionally been quite opposed to talks. You know, I, I think generally... We argue that it makes sense in some places and other places it doesn't, but it's an option that should be on the table. You know, it, it shouldn't be excluded, particularly if, if leaders in the selves and the regions are, are, are open to it. Absolutely. And, and I think the reminder also that in this context, some of these groups are providing services that rural populations and populations in some of the areas want, right? That there is a governance function that they are providing that you have to be conscious of uh, if you're considering these kinds of talks or negotiations. Hold Your Fire is a production of the International Crisis Group. I am your host, Naz Modirzadeh. And I'm Richard Atwood. If you want to read more of our work on the Sahel or anywhere else, check out our website, crisisgroup.org, or follow us on Twitter, at Crisis Group. Thank you very much to our producers, Mae Francis and Ida Holly Nambi, and thank you especially to our listeners. Please do leave us a question or comment, a rating or review, and I hope you all join us again next week. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage 
For people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment, the plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. This Mother's Day, treat mom to healthy, glowing skin with Osea's limited-edition skincare sets. Osea has been making clean, seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. Their advanced eye care duo brightens and firms skin around your eyes, while the Golden Glow Body Trio nourishes and smooths skin all over. Go to oseamalibu.com and use code MOM for 10% off your first order site-wide.